0: I'm Rachel Barenbaum, author of the new novel Atomic Anna, and this is Check This Out with the How Library. I'm so excited to have you here with us tonight. This is the third installment of our fall series, uh, and tonight we have the amazing, amazing debut author Belinda wei Tong in her amazing book, A Map for the Missing. I love this book. I actually got a copy last spring. I scooped it up. I couldn't wait to read it and it did not disappoint so Belinda welcome to the show I'm so excited to have you thank you
1: so much Rachel thanks for that very enthusiastic introduction (laughs) (laughs)
0: Thank you. And thank you to the Howe Library Corporation for sponsoring us tonight and for everybody who's listening. Um, If you are interested in this book, you can check out a copy at the library or go to your local bookstore. In this new literary series, check this out, I feature authors that I think you should be reading and listening to and talking about. So before we jump into questions with Belinda, I'm going to read her biography. So you get a little bit of a sense, a taste of who she is, and then we're gonna jump right in. So Belinda is a 2021 graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop, where she was a Truman Capote fellow and recipient of the Mishner Copernicus Fellowship. She holds a BA from Stanford University and was a 2019 work study fellow at the Middlebury Bread Loaf Writers Conference. Woo, there's a lot going on there. She lived in China from 2016 to 2018, and while there, received an MA from Peking University in Beijing. She currently lives in LA. And this amazing book, look at this beautiful cover, A Map for the Missing, was longlisted for the Center for Fiction's first novel prize. So congratulations, Belinda. That's so exciting.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. So tell us, what is your book about? So A Map for the Missing starts out with Tang Yitian. He's a Chinese-American immigrant, and he has been living in the U.S. for 15 years. Um, and suddenly he gets a call from China, um, from his mom, and his mom tells him that his father, who he is estranged from, who he hasn't spoken to in 15 years, has gone missing um, back in China. And so the story unfolds um, in, in two parts. One part is following Yitian as he goes back to China and searches for his father. Um, and then the second part is happens back in the 1970s um when we hear about why Etienne and his father were originally estranged.
0: Yeah. So um one of the things that I really loved about this book and that pulled me right in was um that backstory with Etienne Um has a love story as well. There is right, Han Wen is in there, but also um you plunge us right into the cultural revolution, right? And sort of how they come together. So Um, I would love to hear about why you decided to pull that in. You know, is
1: is that as sort of one of the centerpieces of the book? Well, it's funny because right now I'm like writing a new book and it feels like I'm uh, and I kind of like started it just thinking about it's about scientists and I'm like 100 pages in and it's become a love story, actually. And so it seems kind of like it might just be something um, about me as a writer that at least every part of every novel I'm going to write is going to have a, a love story component and that's just something that I have to make peace with. Um, so that might be why I pulled it in. Um, another component is is so Han Wen, the woman that Yi Tian is in love with when he's young. Um, she represents a different kind of person that was affected by the Cultural Revolution and a part of um, that history that I really wanted to make sure was represented on the page. Um, something I so I originally conceived the story with just D e. T N And he, when we meet him at the beginning of the book, is like kind of, you know, he's um obviously like has a lot of emotional hangups. But in a way, he's like living this life as professor. He's gone gotten to, gotten to go to college, and he's gotten to do all these things that he really dreamed of. Um and that is one very rare story of what happens for people who live through this era. And I think a more common story is of, um, Chinese people who lived through this era having their lives really negatively affected. And so I was wondering um, how to have another character um, that would kind of portray that part of the history um, and represent that in the book. And so that was how I, I originally developed Han as a character.
0: I love it. Well, I mean, I, it's funny that you're talking about that you're surprised that love was in there. I mean, I feel like love drives the book from the very beginning even, right? It's his love for his father, for his family, right? I mean, love is what, Make some people just get out of bed in the morning, almost all of us. So it so felt very natural that it was in there, all of that. Um, so one of the big themes of the book is leaving, um, as I read it. So, uh, you know, as you said, the book starts and Yitian's father has left, He's right? He's sort of disappeared. Um, we see Han Wen ha- was forced to leave her mother um, and Yitian himself leaves. He goes to America. First he goes to university, then he goes to America. So there are lots of people leaving In this book, I would love to hear you talk about that as the theme and how you thought about that as you were writing.
1: Yeah, leaving was something that was really on my mind because I was thinking about it a lot in the context of immigration. I think so. I started like conceiving this book when I was living in China, um, and I hadn't started writing yet. But this feeling I had when I was in China was I could not believe that my parents lived here for like twenty-five plus years of their life and then suddenly decided to leave. Right. Um, and they made a voluntary decision to leave when they immigrated to the U S. Um, my parents are, are first generation immigrants from China to the US, I should say. Um, they made a voluntary decision to leave. And I wondered what it would feel like. Um, because when they left, they must've known there's a very good chance that they would never come back. They would never go back to the country where they had grown up. Um, and it was so hard for me to conceive of being so Um, certain of the necessity to go somewhere else that you're willing to say goodbye to all of the places that you've grown up with, all the people that you've loved. And so I was really fascinated in um, exploring that concept of like a voluntary departure and what would drive that and how does it feel to, you know, cause yourself this own heartbreak um, that you know you're agreeing to when you decide to leave.
0: Yeah. I mean, you re- I think you really expre- express that pain very well, but also that um, return. You give us a chance to see what it's like for Yitian to come back, right? This is in the very beginning of the book. <laughs> and he comes back and he sees this life that he, you know, where he grew up, very different eyes. And what I found so interesting was the way that people would say to him, oh, you have everything. You're, you are the big, famous, you know, academic. You made it to America. You're the best of the best. And he looks at them thinking some of his old friends are living in fancy houses, right? And like, but you guys have a life because I'm really poor in America, right? And you see this contradiction of like, it always looks better on the other side and you balance that so well. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, one thing that I was um, interested in exploring is like this idea or this feeling that when you decide to immigrate, you kind of like also agree to a sort of non-belonging in, in both countries, right? Um, Like we see and a lot of the book doesn't really take place in the U.S. And that wasn't the story I was primarily interested in. But we do see glimpses of how lonely Etienne feels in America. Um, And then we also when we're in China, like we see how much he doesn't belong because even though he feels like such an intense sense of longing for this home, this place that was once his home. It's moved on when he isn't there and it's become a different place and he doesn't totally fit in there anymore. Um, and he still views himself um, kind of like as this person who's still striving to make it who's who's really str- like you know struggling to live in the US and has a lot of difficulties um, and there's just an incredible dissonance between his self-image and how people in the village are viewing him because he's left and I think That's kind of one of the discrepancies that um, arises from immigration, the sense that um, in both places, even this place that you long for, where you think you may be understood, which is Etienne's hometown, um, that feeling of of belonging is gone.
0: Yeah. So um, as you were speaking, I uh, looked up one of my uh, favorite, favorite passages in here really talks about, you know, um, this, you know, sort of exactly what you're talking about, what it feels like to be moving to America. Um, On page 95, I'll just read it out loud. Um, You write, there were minuscule differences between the accents of their village and surrounding ones created and solidified over hundreds of years. Even uh, Baija village or Five Groves people didn't sound the same as those from Tong family village. How remarkable, Yi Tian sometimes thought, that now he lived in a country where people couldn't even hear the difference between Chinese and Korean. So... There you see the very stark contrast of he's living in America and people don't know the difference between Chinese and Korean. And yet here he comes home and people can tell the difference, tiny difference, right? Of people living what, 20 miles apart, 30 miles apart. Um, I love that you emphasize language in that way. Um, I would love to hear you just talk about how you, because you've talked about language a lot in this book. You know, how were you thinking about that as you were writing this?
1: Well, I, language, I think, Comes up, as you said, in a lot of different ways in the book. Um, in that passage you just read, something I was just thinking about is again, like that what what is left? what is lost with immigration, right? And It's like the nuances of of who we are. Um, mm-hmm. there's so much specificity to Yitian's personal history, and a lot of that comes from the language he speaks, right? There's dialect of what he speaks versus what people in the capital might speak. Um, and there are all these differences and he moves to a place where all of that kind of gets erased or becomes kind of molded into like one big mass of history that has no distinctions within it. Um, and I, I like the idea of language there as a way of holding on or describing the kind of specificity that Etienne may have grown up with. And I'm um, using that like as a counter to this kind of amalgamizing that is happening to ETN when he's in the U.S. Um, More broadly, I was thinking about ways to incorporate Chinese into this book, because that was something that I thought a lot about when I was in China. Like um, it was amazing to me. I got way better at Chinese while I was there. Um, And it was amazing to me that through getting better at language, I was able to access parts of my family history and access like emotional closeness because of, you know, um, increased proficiency in that language. And so language was acting as a conduit for me. And so, in the book too, I tried to to talk about language as a way of knowing people better. So, in the passage you read, it's about like an intimacy with the place that he that he's from, and like knowing these very small nuances in language, um, with the way that he speaks. As soon as he returns to his ancestral home, that's a form of intimacy with his home. Um, so those were all the things that I was trying to do with language there.
0: Yeah. I love that because you also show how he's an outsider with language. Um, there was a passage in here, I don't have it marked, but um, where he was saying he learned how to laugh at jokes, like he would laugh with everybody else and sort of take their cues, even though he didn't understand the jokes, right? It's like if you when you learn a lo- new language, you might understand every word being
1: said, but you don't understand the nuance and why it's funny. Right. And right. You captured that. Right. And you have to kind of become a different person in order to like blend in and assimilate using that new language, right? Like. Who knows yeah. if you, Tim, would have actually found that joke funny. Uh, right. But in the moments, like the the, um, the assimilation takes priority over, like, the demonstration of any personality. Right, right. It
0: hurt me when, you know, when you wrote, he laughed, He would learn what kind of laugh to give, too, yeah. based on the social cues around him. I mean, yes, it was just, yes, there you go, being an immigrant. Um, okay, so another passage that I want to talk to you about a little bit different is um, books and stories because Yi Tian is very close to his grandfather um, who is sort of an endless storyteller, right? He's always telling stories um, and he's telling stories every night. And uh, on page 32, you write just this, I'll read just this one paragraph. They kept going until, oops, his grandfather finished the 5,000 years contained in the 24 histories, volumes that he'd memorized as a matter of safety. It was gambling to rely on words stored on paper, his grandfather said. Books could be destroyed. A small army, sometimes Japanese, more often Chinese, your own people, finding it easiest to stage a betrayal, could tear through a village, conscript the men, march further with them, leaving the fields intact, but piling all the books to be burned. Even those illiterate men knew how powerful words could be there you go, (laughs) on books and stories that, you know, the power of words. I love that paragraph. And I just want to hear you talk about it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so that paragraph is based on, you know, real life and stuff that that happened in my family. Um, Like the, the burning of books is something that is like really well traced throughout Chinese history. And especially during the period of the Cultural Revolution, so much history was destroyed because it was viewed as like dangerous. And it was viewed as kind of counter to what like the Communist Party wanted the nation to focus on. And um, I think the fact that like in so many autocratic regimes in the U.S. right now that so much attention is paid to books and trying to control that uh, to like control what what people are given access to is kind of a testament to the power that people see in books and the power that people see books have in order to, you know, make people more open minded or or change ideas and that to some people is very dangerous um so when my dad was growing up he had a grandfather like the grandfather in this book um i love was that. really influential in his upbringing and who really instilled in him this love of reading and culture um and one of the things that my dad would always talk about in his grandfather was that he had memorized the 24 histories which is this huge insanely long volume of chinese history word for word because they did not have access to books when he was younger and he knew it was dangerous. Um, He knew that the book was in danger of being banned. Um, And so he had memorized that, that Pat, that all the history in there. And to me, that sounded amazing. Like I have no memory anymore. You know, like I rely on looking things up on my iPhone or looking things up on the internet for everything um, right. and I wonder just what it would feel like to place such importance that you're willing really, on books and the information contained in them that you would go through such lengths to to remember them, to physically remember them in order to retain that information.
0: Yeah. But then you contrast that with right, the importance of books and words on paper with the importance of identity cards. And there's this moment very early on where Yetien realizes he doesn't have his Chinese identity card, he only has his American card, right? And he's sort of Stuck in the past, I thought that was a symbol of he had everything that was old because he didn't even have the right card right anymore. He had the old one. He had never upgraded, Um, and you know, and so there you are. It's like no books, but we need all this paper and this bureaucracy, and you have to take this paper test and move on, right? I thought that was a really interesting contrast that you had in there. Um, did you think about that or,
1: you know, how did that come to be? That's so interesting. You know, what? I hadn't thought about that and you're the first person who's kind of brought up that contrast to me. So, so thank <laughs> you for that. Um, I, yeah, oh, it's so interesting to think about what kinds of words are kind of, um, approved by the government and what kinds are actually utilized by them in order for that, uh, like for them to achieve their purposes, you know, of testing people through the, the college entrance exam or testing people through uh, or um, start keeping track of people through identity cards and what kinds are, are not are considered by them to be dangerous. That's fascinating.
0: Yeah. So um, I love that you really took us through this. Uh, the college entrance exams. Right. And, the, and these it was like this one test that could change everybody's life, anybody's life. Right. You could anyone could sign up for it and um, all the kids who wanted to go to college had to go to sort of a bigger city. They were in a small village and they'd go to a bigger city to take this test. Um, and it just sounded terrifying to me. Like I can't imagine having to do that and the pressure, the amount of pressure on these kids. And we see that you describe it so well.
1: How did you dig into that pressure? Well, w- it was also sounded terrifying to me. You know, I remember <laughs> when I was in high school taking the SAT and that exam is probably like 10 percent of the importance of China's college entrance exam. And I remember yeah. like going to the um, going to the exam site in the morning and like having a panic attack, you know. So it, a lot of it was just like trying to reconnect with my high school <laughs> self and remember how how awful that was. Um, but yeah, like I said, like this exam is kind of everything for for Chinese young people. It was it certainly is now and it was then. Um, in China, the college entrance is only determined by this one test. So there's nothing else. There's, you know, you can't write a good essay in order to (laughs) make up for it. You can't have good grades to make up for it. It's just your score on this test. And it takes place once a year over three days. And that's the only chance you get. Um, And I think, yeah, all of us have gone through, you know, test taking and it's not hard to, to imagine the kind of anxiety and panic that might induce in someone to Oh have, my God, but I've taken yeah.
0: tests, but not like that. Right, <laughs> you know? right, oh exactly, exactly. That is a whole other level. And I just like, you just put us in the world and what Yitian had to do to get there, to you know literally get to the room was just beautiful. And I really encourage all of you to read this book, if not just for that, like what a person is willing to do for a better life right? For a chance, for a dream. I just thought you captured that so well, no matter where they live, right? I love these stories of people fighting for that, that moment. And I thought you just captured it so well. Um, so I wanted to ask you a um, a book about a question about the book itself, like the printing. So you have some graphs printed in here. There's some little tiny equations. You don't have to read the equations of the graphs to understand the book, just to be clear, right? Um, and there's, uh, right. And you also have people's names and you talk about their names. You have Chinese characters in here. Um, what would, wh- how, what did your editors think
1: about all of these, you know, <laughs> these sort of additions? have you edited a book you must have, if you're asking this question, you saw <laughs> this and you're like, Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, I want to know. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, well, the, my when we we're doing the print, set, the print version of the book, there was a lot of checking in um, and edit like every few days when they're finalizing the, um, you know, the I can't remember what it's called, the final pass, whatever. They were like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, does this look the way you want it to? We have to have someone redraw this. Um, you know, does this look good? Because I'd drawn a version in like Microsoft Word myself when I was working on the book, but obviously okay. it's like too amateur to get printed. Um, uh, <laughs> but where we like really got into trouble or where things got complicated was when we were recording the audiobook because oh my god, um, and it never occurred to me, but I was getting all these emails from my producer, the audiobook producer being like, How do we, how should we pronounce this? Like for the book, should we just say like see there's a figure on the page <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so that it got quite complicated for that,
0: yeah, well, so what was the answer? How did they pronounce it in the audio
1: book? I there so there are ways to verbalize the, that math like I and I was uh-huh. back to you know when like my math professors would be saying the equations as they would write it so I gave them readings I gave I would like I recorded <laughs> stuff for them um, okay it was just that but I imagine if you are encountering this and you haven't read math in a long time, it would be quite confusing to you.
0: But you can totally skip it. You don't need right. to read yeah. but Like you talk through them. They were just sort of visuals that I thought were amazing and helpful, but you definitely don't need them. So no one should be intimidated by that question.
1: <laughs> and there's not that many of them. There's like four in the entire book. So you just yeah. have to make sure yeah. one for every hundred pages.
0: <laughs> yeah, it just stuck out like, oh my God, that's like an editor's nightmare. Yeah. Um. Okay, so uh, I wanted to ask you before we sort of switch gears into asking more about writing. um, So as we get towards the end, not a spoiler, but one of the big themes and one of the themes that the characters are working towards through the entire book is forgiveness. They're looking for forgiveness. They're hoping they can find forgiveness, right? In themselves, from other people. Um, How did you think about forgiveness in this book and in the journeys that your characters take?
1: Yeah, I was... I really like that you said they're looking for forgiveness in themselves, because I think that was one of the strongest things that I was thinking about. Um, Yitian, I think his maybe his biggest like inner turmoil throughout this book is how much he is unable to forgive himself um, for for things that happen early on when he's a child, um, which I won't give away. But he like several things happen. um, Some sacrifices are made for him, and I think he feels enormous sense of shame and enormous inability to forgive himself. And it was so interesting to me um, because alongside Etienne's journey for self-forgiveness, his father um, kind of wants Etienne to forgive him, you know, and um, I was just struck by how like we could create these narratives around what kind of forgiveness we need to find and who won't forgive us ever. Um, that kind of don't make space for the grace that others show for us. And I wanted to, to kind of lay those out side by side, ETM searching for his own forgiveness while his father's searching for an entirely different kind of forgiveness, um, to, to demonstrate how kind of they're missing each other so much in, in what kind of forgiveness they're looking for.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. <laughs> And very hard to write about. (laughs) So I want to switch gears for the last few minutes here um, to ask you, because many of our listeners are writers um, and they all want to know what is the hardest, what was the hardest part about getting this book published? This is your debut, this beautiful book. What was the hardest part on the journey?
1: I think the hardest part was getting started. Um, And I I would say, I think it's like so interesting as I think probably this answer to this question is going to reveal a lot about myself, but like what I really struggle with is is like this idea of of self-doubt. And I think creating a book is so hard for people who have a lot of self-doubt because you're creating an imaginary world and asking people to believe in it. And when you don't believe in it, it's like the slightest um, pin in that bubble can just shatter everything. And so when I was first starting out, it was so hard for me to imagine creating a world um, that I, that even I could believe in as the writer of it, much less that readers could believe in. And as I was like conceiving the novel, um, every time I would like think of something a character would do, I would say I would, there'd be like another equally opposite force in my head saying like, well, no one will believe that, you know, that would happen or that these two characters would do these things. And so I was always struggling with, with just getting started with, telling myself you could believe in this fictional world and write it. Um, so that was the, the most difficult part for me.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm so glad that you did find the courage to believe in it <laughs> and that you got through it. Um, and so did you start this book? You mentioned, you said while you're in China, so was it 2016? Like you've been working on it for actually, four or five years. I started
1: writing it in 2019 in January I remember it was actually like it was around January 1st of 2019 when I was, um, home with my family over over uh the holidays. So I had started thinking about this book, like pretty much as soon as I was writing fiction, I kind of knew like, oh, I want this to be my first novel. But I had this feeling like I wasn't ready to to write it yet. Um, and I think that was probably right, that I was really far from being ready to write it. Um, and so probably I was thinking about it in my head for, I don't know, like three or four years before I started actually writing.
0: Yeah, I love that you're talking about that because I think a lot of people see, you know, a shiny, beautiful book and they think it just like popped out, right? <laughs> but actually, no, it was incubating in your head for three, four years, right? As you're like probably imagining characters or scenes or um, you know, what you want to
1: think about, talk about in the book. Is is that right? I mean, little pieces are coming to you. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, now I'm like writing a book, like I have much more pressure on myself. And I'm like, I need to finish the book by. right now my goal is like in a year I want to have the draft finished and I do look back on that time when I I wasn't I like took things much more slowly just because I didn't think I had the ability to write a book and I was really like just daydreaming about the book all the time and seems kind of nice to me it feels kind of romantic that you know I just I had the, the, like the images in my head and what, like I would go on a train ride and I would think, Oh, I should put that in the book. (laughs) Uh, And that was like a really nice way for the story to unfold. Yeah.
0: I love that. So what kind of advice do you have for new writers or aspiring writers?
1: I would say the piece of advice that I'm trying to give to myself most of the time right now. And so I'd pass this on to others is to, um, trust that like time solves a lot of writing problems. I think there's a sense that I have, you know, when I'm like, I'm trying to meet my daily word count and I can't figure out this issue. Like I will get so frustrated with myself and like be tearing my hair out. And I can't tell you how many times that's happened And the next day after a good night's sleep or after a few nights of sleep, I've gone to the same thing. And been like, Oh, you know, the answer to this is apparent. Um, and same thing that I've, you know, had, well, like, Structuring stories and structuring this last novel and figuring out where to put stuff like issues that at points felt intractable to me suddenly became tractable with just you know a few a uh, few days or a few weeks passing. um So yeah, what I'm trying to tell myself is to you know keep writing and have faith that you know the same mind that came up with most of these stories and created this these problems has the ability to to think <laughs> through them um and not to get too frustrated by the thinking process
0: yeah so when you are frustrated do you look back on a map for the missing and you're like oh yeah I did this before and like look up specific
1: passages I won't look up specific passages but I do have it in my head like oh you've written a novel before you can write another one
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's great that's great um and what about um so this is a new question that I want to ask because I recently became aware that all different writers have different, um, ideas on drafts and like what they call a draft. Um, so like this one person was telling me last weekend that um, every 30 days she calls whatever she's working on a new draft versus like, I sort of, whenever I have a whole new idea, I'm like, Oh, that's a new draft. Even if it's just, you know, cutting a page or something. Um, how do you think about drafts
1: as you're writing? Wow. I love that. If both of those strike me as like way more generous for generous (laughs) to you as a writer, like ideas of what a draft is, I have such. I think really strict rules on drafts, like I would have to finish an entire, you know, zero to page 400, whatever the full page count. Wow. Okay. Um, in order to consider it a draft, but I don't like that. You know, it puts too much pressure, um, on me. I think like you, with, when you're in the process of getting to page 400, it's like, you feel like trash. You're like, I don't even have a single draft yet. Um, and it seems much more generous to say, you know, I've been working on this for 30 days. That that counts as a new draft.
0: Yeah, I thought that was kind of brilliant. I might yeah. use it soon. Yeah. I like- anyway, Belinda Huijin Tang, thank you so much for joining me today. A Map for the Missing is her debut, long listed again for the Center for Fiction's first novel prize and just brilliant. If you haven't read it, go get a copy check it out of your library, check it out of the Howe Library, or go to your local bookstore and buy a copy. Thank you so much for joining us for this third installment of Check This Out. We're so happy to have you. Thank you to the Howe Library Corporation and to our amazing producers tonight, Eric Tanish and Megan Coleman. Thank you for all of your hard work. Join us again soon. Next up in the series, we have Elena Arma coming. Spanish love deception and her New York Times bestseller, The American Roommate Experiment. I will see everybody on November 9th. Thanks again, Belinda. Have a good night. Thanks,
1: Rachel.